Uh, before we, what else was I going to say? Oh, before we get into the, uh, the sermon itself, I did ask permission of Pastor Aiden to plug this book. Uh, it is uh, really helpful. In fact, I'd say necessary as, as a Christian to sort of equip your toolbox of basic fundamentals and then build from there. Uh, some of you may have this already. If you don't, uh, Concise Theology uh, by J.I. Packer. Uh, he died, I, was it a couple of years, about a year? Was it a year ago? I believe it was last summer. Um, so I call it sort of a <clears throat> sheepishly a bathroom book. You know, it's a book you could take to the bathroom and re literally read a few chapters and be done. Uh, don't worry, this is sanitized. It's perfectly safe. Um, but it's like a page and a half for each chapter. So it's things on, you know, you could just, it's in different parts, uh, in different topics, but everything from uh, salvation, I'm just thumbing through it, transfiguration, law in action, original sin, Satan, wisdom, sovereignty, a whole host of things. Just a great book to sort of help you build a, not only a vocabulary, but a fundamental knowledge of both God and yourself and his and and the world that he made. So concise theology, Packer. All right. And now with that, um, I ask you to please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty eight, uh, verses sixteen through twenty. And just out of sheer curiosity, I'm wondering who was here last Sunday. Uh, most, uh, half of you, half of you weren't. Well, uh, we're sort of building upon that. Don't worry, you didn't need to be here last week to make sense um, or even apply what we cover um, this afternoon. Before I read the scripture, would you please join me in prayer? Father, would you please help us now once again as we turn to your holy word? May your transforming truth and power dwell in and go out among us. Help us now to fight against distraction. Would you grant each of us clarity, and soft, willing hearts as we focus now on Jesus and what he said. Amen. And now our scripture passage. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I want you to look back even just a few months ago, you know, as we were sort of dealing with a bit of the downturn of the pandemic. And we're, I'm, if you're like me, you're experiencing a lot of attention sort of between the sheltering in place and returning 
as we hope to be doing now to some faint semblance of normalcy. But even now, I look out and you're still masked. So we're not, right, we're not pre-pandemic yet. Don't you hate these words? One day they'll be hopefully erased from, you know, sermons. We won't be always mentioning them, but here we are. Um, Even though the prospect for things reopening uh, looks very hopeful, this sense of isolation um, and sort of change in our behavior is likely going to linger for a bit. How long? We don't know. Uh, But here's the point. We, We long, don't you long, to return to the way things were, right? We said uh, on December 31st, 2019, Happy New Year. Little did we know, little did we know what 2020 would bring. Well, you're not alone. We too likely have similar thoughts to those of the disciples on their way to Galilee. That's the context of the passage today. We talked about that last Sunday. This commission was given, and uh, before the commission, they were directed to go, the disciples, to Galilee to meet Jesus there. And they had to doubt that a sense of normalcy, meaning pre-crucifixion, can be restored. I preached part one uh, from this text last Sunday, move out the king's parameters. And we focused on two verses, if you look with me at the text, sandwiching the Great Commission. And very briefly, just as a uh, sort of a uh, refresh our memory, the first parameter was that Jesus has all power. They're easy to remember, they're peas. He has all power. And verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's the sovereign ruler of all things. That's the first thing he wants to uh, set down, lay down, before he gives the Great Commission. The second parameter is his presence. And you see that right if you look with me at the end of verse 20. Behold, this is after he gives the commission, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so we've got verse 18, we've got verse 20. And these two parameters of his power and presence, they bookend the command that he makes in the middle Uh, to go and make disciples. And here's the point. These are not merely theological truths, but truths meant to help you and me as we engage and go and make disciples. Okay, so that's just a brief, very brief recap from last Sunday. Well, this afternoon, I want us to now turn our attention to what's inside of these two primaries, meaning what they're bracketing. Uh, these two parameters of his power and presence. And it's what I call the king's prescription. The king's prescription. Now, when I use the word prescription, I I mean it in the classic sense. Um, Prescribing used to carry authoritative weight. Those of you, maybe if you're in med school or nursing or you're in some realm of that, uh, that, that, um, education or, or profession, uh, if the doctor prescribed you medicine, it wasn't considered your prerogative to follow the doctor's orders. You were expected to do precisely what the doctor said. 
And so the authority of prescribing is bound up not in the prescription itself, but in the one authorized to prescribe it. Well, if that's the case for a doctor, how much more so for King Jesus? The resurrected one, he has all power and authority over absolutely everything, including the power over death himself, including the power over his own death. He now gives his disciples uh, in verses 18 through 20, not merely a suggestion or something that's their prerogative to do or not. Right? I, get, I go to the doctor. I don't know about you. I, got a, I don't know how many bottles of meds I have that are five or six years old that are just sitting there languishing. Why? Because I didn't do... Sad to say, doctors have, have, have lost their authoritative weight. But with Jesus, he gives a specific directive. It's not merely a recommendation or a suggestion, a command. Indeed, they are what can be considered uh, marching orders. Go, therefore. It's what one commentator calls uh, move out. So the question is, how can we do this? How can you as a church do this, right? You're, You're getting your footing under you you've uh, recently become part of a new denomination, you're going through membership classes, are you just supposed to sort of, are you in sort of a, a nebulous limbo phase and, and just kind of being stationary until things, I mean, what's, at what point do you move out? What does that look like for you, this specific church, at this particular point in time? How do you effectively, in other words, move out when the immediate future is a little unclear? Well, I hope to give some tangible application to that question later on. For now, here's how we're going to move forward. We're going to especially focus on three main questions regarding uh, uh, Jesus' prescription for moving out. And they are who, what, and how. Who's involved? What are we supposed to do? And how might we do it? And I'm going to spend less time on the who and what and more on the how. Well, let's go on to the what. What does Jesus' command to move out mean? Primarily, if you look at the text, it's about one thing, isn't it? It's pretty clear. Make disciples. Followers of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, Again, look at the text two ways. First, baptizing them. Jesus says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while this indeed includes water baptism and what makes such baptism valid, that is, it is Trinitarian, it's not merely that, as important as that is. It's about the act of spiritual baptism beginning a relationship with the triune God, communing with him and fellowshipping with him, having an intimate relationship with him so that your whole identity and life is bound up in him. And you can get a hint of this when Luke records the Apostle Paul saying, in him we live and move and have our being. Now along with the baptizing is the second what, and that's teaching. Now, why is this important? That's what, part of what's going on in membership classes, right? There's, there's teaching going on. 
Uh, you may have had Sunday school uh, at one time here if you ever have children. Uh, more children than are here. I'm looking around. I don't see a whole lot of kids roaming. Um, but you, I'm guessing as you grow, uh, numerically, you're going to be having classes um, and maybe even in classes, introductory introduction to Christian, the Christian faith for people exploring what it means to be a Christian. That's part of, part of teaching. Now, why is this important? Teaching them, Jesus says, to obey. And here's the reason. Because the Christian faith is not instinctive, nor is it intuitive. I'm going to repeat that because it is very important. The Christian faith is not instinctive, nor is it intuitive. To be a disciple of Jesus and one who makes disciples of Jesus, and I hope I'm speaking to to uh, uh, a congregation that is both, right? You are a disciple who's about the business of making disciples. To be a disciple of Jesus and one who makes disciples of Jesus, one must be taught, right? You must be taught, both formally and informally. Yes, you have this local church, those who are gifted, called, qualified to preach and teach. But think how often, just in your own life, in your own context, in your own relations, relational spheres, how often most of the teaching and your understanding of the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus, be a disciple of Jesus, happens outside of Sundays. Just think of your own experience. Some of you have young children, and you especially know this. You're teaching your kids all the time, right? Maybe not formally, right? For example, various catechisms, but informally. You're praying with them. You're modeling what it means to talk to God as father and, and yourself and, and them as their child. Every day instructing and correcting day in, day out. Just the regular rhythm of applying the Bible to all of life living in light of the gospel of Jesus every day, ongoing repentance, ongoing faith. All in the context of a family, an intimate relationship that you have with one another. Now here's the thing, you don't have to be married and have kids to do this. And I'll touch more on that later. So that's the, um, that's the what. Very briefly, let's move on to the who. And the who is essentially two groups of people. And if you look at the text, in the immediate context, Jesus is talking to the 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee. So, you know, maybe you can argue, well, this is something confined just to them, this, this great commission Jesus gives, or just for church leaders. Yet the early church paints a very different picture. Instead of being related to or confined to ministry leaders, professionals, everyone in the early church, everyone bar none, was involved in disciple making. So, okay, Michael, where do you get this from? I see at least two examples from Scripture that wonderfully illustrate this, and both are in church contexts, and they're both in cities. Uh, that Paul wrote to. The first is in Colossae, uh, the second in Thessal Thessal Thessalonica. 
It's a hard word to say. First, Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, let the word of God dwell in, the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to every Christian. It's not just to church leaders. And that is the word of Christ that is, notice, the all-encompassing nature of that uh, admonition. The second is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Listen to what Paul writes. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you, meaning not church leaders, not the old time, I mean, this is the early church. This is everyone involved a part, that's a part of this local church. You may become an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Pretty staggering, isn't it? Think about this. The early church and Paul's saying, you are living this out so amazingly. We don't even really need to, we don't even need to say anything because you're, the way you're living speaks volumes. Two weeks from now, we'll get into more about what the necessity of proclamation. So I'm not saying proclamation is not necessary, nor is Christ. All right. In these churches, here's the question. What does the Apostle Paul find? What is he finding? Not just the leaders, but every member ministry, every single member, everyone teaching, proclaiming God's word to one another. It's normal. It's not an unusual thing. It's not confined to Sundays. It is 24-7, 365, day in and day out, the mundane, the Christian life in the process of being a disciple and making disciples is mundane. It is. It is just ordinary life. And we have no reason to believe that this command has lessened over time. Well, that's the first part of the who. The second part of the who has two subsets. Now, first are those who aren't Christians. Now, think about this. From insignificant and tiny Galilee to the all nations. And it's telling that Jesus instructs his disciples to meet him in Galilee. Last Sunday, I'm, I mentioned that, that, that both the angel and Jesus' command to meet for his disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee, a full day's trip from where they were, was sort of a, um, a pre-command to the great command right here, the great commission. Now, why specifically is Galilee important? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it so important to meet in Galilee? Well, here's what I think Jesus is doing. After the disorienting past few days of his death, burial, and resurrection, he effectively brings them back. He brings them back to their hometown. That's what Galilee is. Galilee is their hometown. But it's also where Jesus' earthly ministry began. So that's where it's very strategic. It's, an, it's very purposeful 
to bring them there before he is ascended. From the onset, he realizes the temptation that the disciples would likely have to get what we all get, which is comfortable, to turn inward. And instead, he immediately enlarges their scope, not just from Galilee or Jerusalem or Israel or the Middle East, not just their own people group, people who look like them, culturally are like them, talk like them, not focusing on certain continents and neglecting others, but astonishingly, all nations, no exceptions. Now, I want you to think how mind-blowing it must have been for the disciples to hear Jesus say that. Think about it. That'd be astonishing. All people groups, all nations, all ethnicities, and it's on us to do it. It's on us 11 to get it to sort of get the ball rolling. It was more than just a tall order. It had to have seemed like an insurmountable task. And yet, remember these parameters. Jesus had just reminded them what? All power and authority I have and I am with you always. And so when he says to them, all nations, go to all the nations, it is for Jesus to give that to these sort of hapless 11 uh, is a mere trifle. Now this call to disciple all nations has many ramifications, doesn't it? In the past, uh, it meant sending out Christians from local churches and mission agencies to unreached people groups, engaging in what we call pioneer missions. But here's the thing. Today, the, the UN reports that, that over 55 of the world's population live in urban areas. Now, by 2050, they're projecting that to go up to 70%. And that's a 15% increase. That's a pretty big jump. So yes, pioneer missions to unreached people groups must remain a top level priority. We're now in an unprecedented time and opportunity. Urban cities, particularly in the United States, are becoming more diverse. And you're feeling this, aren't you? You're seeing it. You're a part of it. Sociologically, ethnically, racially, religion, worldview. In other words, they, the nations are coming here. And so the challenge for you and for me, indeed all Christians, particularly in the West, isn't merely to learn a new foreign language and prepare to enter a wholly different culture on the other side of the world. That's important. There's, there's a place for that. So I'm not, I am in no way backpedaling on the need to prepare and to cultivate a people to go and, and, and explore a call to foreign missions. Rather, it is to learn to adapt right where you are, right where you are living as faithful exiles and witnesses of Jesus to an increasingly broken and fragmented culture, a culture that 
is more difficult to find things on which we can agree. So that's the first subset. The second subset I've already briefly mentioned. We're to make, so we're, the, the first subset was there's the, there's the unbelievers, right? Those who aren't yet disciples of Jesus. The second one is we're to make disciples in the church. Yes, that includes Sundays, or if you've got life groups as well, and other structured times, but it also often includes more informal, less structured teaching. Where do you see this in the Bible? I have in mind uh, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your... Listen to the regular mundaneness of this, okay? You shall teach, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So yes, there's the teach them diligently aspect, the formal, uh, the formal nature that's bound up in teaching and making disciples. But more often, don't you find this to be the case? And often more effective is the day-to-day -day stuff. Stuff done casually and formally, but with no less intentionality. Talking of God's words in your home, when you're out on a walk, when you go to sleep, and when you wake up and gather around the table for a meal. Again, this is all done within the context of a home. But as I mentioned before, it's not exclusively confined to those of you which I believe are the, the minority, who are married with children. Instead, it includes single, unmarried people doing th these things with roommates and friends. Every age, every life stage. Here's the picture that the, the Bible uh, and what's bound up in Jesus' Great Commission ought to uh, conjure up. An entire church engaged in making disciples of one another through the word and prayer in the context of really ordinary life. Okay? That's what he's putting his finger on. We've discussed the who and the what of Jesus' command to move out and make disciples of him. But perhaps the biggest question many of you are now asking is how? How? Uh, how do I do this? How do we do this, right? I hope you're asking these questions, and at least in your mind, and I hope you'll talk about it today and even throughout the week. What does it look like? Well, essentially, as it, I, I'm, good, I'm good with pictures in my imagination, so here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to think directionally, all right? I'm thinking about the how. So Jesus commands us here to move out Right? Go, move out, all nations, make disciples. What does it suggest? What does the very notion of go, therefore, suggest? Motion, activity, progression, 
intentionality. And that entails at least two things. And again, think directionally, horizontal, horizontal and vertical. Let's take these one at a time. First, horizontal. This is already alluded to in the moving out. When I say horizontally, I want you to think people. Intentionally, deliberately, creatively, these are not uh, antithetical to the church. They ought not to be to the Christian faith. Imaginatively finding ways to connect with people. People who aren't necessarily like you. People who aren't already Christians. Okay? So that's the horizontal aspect. People who aren't yet disciples of Jesus. How do you do that? Again, think in the context of regular, ordinary life. Shopping, eating, frequenting places where there are people that you can meet. People who aren't yet disciples, followers of Jesus. But here is the problem. I know you're listening going, oh gosh, I'm not like that. I get it. My wife's not... She's not here, so I can say this. She's not like that either. I am extroverted to the nth degree. I am off the charts. Every time I take one of these tests, I'm just always, I intentionally even try to score low, and it's just off the charts uh, extroversion. It's just incredibly crazy. As I mentioned earlier, our default mode in the church is the exact opposite. That is, to not move out. Instead, what do we do? We often choose, if we're honest with ourselves, the low-risk, safest option. And this is understandable, especially for those of you who are particularly uh, introverted. Well, as we move out horizontally, though, here's the thing. You have to avoid two extremes. Two extremes. The first is immersion, and the second is exclusion. Now, what do I mean by immersion? I mean that to, to so become a part of your given culture that you become, you eventually, over time, become indistinguishable from it. That's immersion. These are the Christians, in other words, who shirk at being thought of as different. And so what do they do? And maybe this is some of you here. You swing the pendulum the other way and engage and participate in things that are going to make you have a seat at the table of cultural relevance. Don't you want that? Does anybody want to go to the different table? No, we, we want to go to the big table. We want to go to the table where, where big topics, things matter, where we're accepted. Don't you want that? I do. By doing so, we, we think that others are going to accept us, thereby gaining a listening ear and open mind to the gospel of Jesus. But that usually, in my estimation, doesn't happen. Here's why. Because by immersing, immersing yourself in your surrounding culture, whatever that is, you actually do the exact opposite. You lose credibility. Because people don't see a distinct difference in the way you live. Now, and here I'm not talking about 
primarily outward appearances, right? Your clothing, your hair, tattoos, body piercings, etc. Instead, here's what I mean. I'm talking about being so distinctly different, palpably different, not for the sake of being different, but rather because you indeed are different, because God has made you different, okay? So yes, you must avoid immersion, but the opposite extreme to avoid is exclusion. Exclusion, not in the sense of being intolerant, but exclusion in the sense of being in the world, but not of it. These are Christians who pay lip service to the first part, that is being in the world, but in reality, functionally, are quite separate from it. Indeed, you may even know someone, this may be some of you. You can wear it as a badge of honor. You can scoff at fellow Christians who are all about cultural engagement. Instead, they boast about how separate they are from the world. Do you know people like that? Do you know anybody like that? I do. They're content, in other words, living in their safe, inoculated Christian bubble, seemingly protected from the world out there. Now, I I can't speak for this church because I don't know you well enough. But for most churches here in the U.S., I don't think this second point, exclusion, is our struggle. Most of us, I think, are, on the, are well on the immersion side of the spectrum. And so it would do us well to step back, candidly assess, how are we doing? How are we doing in this, this area between immersion and exclusion as we seek to go about and make this, go, go into the world, make disciples for King Jesus. Which leads me to my second directional point. If the first is horizontal, and that is towards people, okay, think directionally. The second is vertical, and that's toward God. Just ask, what was it that made the early church's witness so compelling? What was it? Was it their cultural engagement? Was it the dis- these 11 disciples' savvy um, uh, strategies? No. Here's what I think it was. They were so bound up in their identity as being God's chosen and beloved people that it spilled out into every area of their lives. Where do I get that from? A letter that one of the disciples that was there uh, during that great commissioning, Peter, the apostle, wrote a letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and listen to what he writes. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, Why? Here's the why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have 
received mercy. What's Peter doing here? He's tapping into our identity, our fundamental identity. Here's who you are. Live out of that identity as you go about and, and, and fulfill the great commission to all nations. We briefly covered the who and what and how of the Great Commission. But before we conclude, I want to give a brief word on why. Well, perhaps you could just say, well, Michael, isn't it obvious? I mean, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is here given this command to the 11 disciples. He's got authority, right? He's sovereign. He's the king. He's about to be ascended. Isn't that, an, isn't that adequate enough? In other words, in one word you could say, isn't it, isn't it just obedience? We do it, in other words, because he said so. Now here's the thing. Obedience is bound up in this command. I already alluded to that, that Jesus directed his disciples to go meet him to Galilee. And it was to these obedient ones that he then gave these marching orders. So we, I am not in any way minimizing, nor must you minimize obedience. It is vital in what it means to follow Jesus and to go about the business of making disciples. But mere obedience, what I sort of call bootstrap Christianity, right? I'm just going to do it. That's I guess, Nike Christianity. Mere obedience isn't going to sustain you for the long haul. It's not going to sustain you individually. It's not going to sustain this church. It won't. You won't grow. The first why might at first times at first seem a bit strange. Meaning, why? If, so it's not, let me back up. If it's not just a matter of sheer obedience, just doing it, Nike Christianity, then what is it? It's simply a healthy desire to reproduce. Now think on the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. God makes Adam and Eve. He blesses them with an earth and animals, fish, birds to enjoy. And he recognizes a tendency in them that's also inherent in us today. What is that? It's to consume. To content, to be content, enjoying, receiving these blessings and good gifts which we should. We should enjoy them. God made them. He made them for us to enjoy. But instead, God, what does he do? He tells them, be fruitful and multiply. And in so doing, they bring others to share in these blessings and gifts, and not merely or even as consumers, but as beneficiaries and stewards of God's goodness, grace, and love. In other words, so they want to bring others do you see the difference? Not because they should, but because you want to bring others into this reciprocal relationship of receiving and giving. Receiving from the triune God and giving back to, to this triune God their love, affection, and worship. That's the first why. The second why I've already mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2. And that is to look at yourselves as mercy makers and mercy sharers. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. And so you take this gospel of Jesus, this incredible news of sins forgiven, being made right forever with a holy and just God, and we didn't deserve it. None of us here did, and nor does anyone else, and yet we're compelled to live our lives, our identity as the mercied ones, the loved ones, the forgiven set-apart ones. Peter writes, God's own chosen and beloved. That's who you are as a Christian, right? That's who you are. Fundamentally, that's your core primary identity. Friends, dear sisters, dear brothers, you have amazing news to share. It is amazing. That gospel is good news. It is great news. You have a message. We're going to get into that a couple weeks from, t- from a couple Sundays from today. What's bound up in that? He is coming again to make all things new in him. Together, resolve as a church, resolve individually, come what may, to move out. Move out as his own chosen peculiar people knowing that as you do so, he blankets you and the world with his matchless power and his presence. He's not only the supreme, transcendent king over all and in all for whom all things were made, but he is our imminent king, Emmanuel, God with us. And so just as when he gave that commission to these 11 weary, skeptical, believing and doubting disciples. He has them and he has us and his world firmly, lovingly in his mighty hands. Not only now, but Jesus says in these these verses, but forever, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's with you, that he's with the church to the end of the age? Because he is. So rest in that. Rest in that knowledge and in the work that God has you. He's got this church. He's got the church. He's got this world under his control in his loving arms. Let's pray. Good and gracious, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us from our sin and ourselves. Empower us now. Would you ignite imaginations, inflame desires to move outward? Taking our cues from King Jesus, the one who was always seeking out those who didn't know him, And so may we not only be truth tellers, but the mercied ones, living out our identity as your chosen and beloved children. And Lord, yes, we want to be obedient to this command to move out, but along with it, would you give us desire to love what you command? As Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So too may we move out, good-newsing the world with deep humility, 
brokenness, compassion, and love. Help us, we pray. Help, Father, this church right here and now in the days and the weeks and the months and years. And Father, if it be your will, decades to come. Would it be a church that grows spiritually in their love for you and for one another and for the world? And would you be pleased, Father, to bless it with increased numbers as well? Do these things, for we ask in Jesus' mighty, precious name.